0: To be with you guys again co-founder millennium alliance alex sobel here with you for another great edition of the millennium alive podcast series very cool setup we've got today i think this is the first time or it is the first time that i personally have interviewed two people versus just doing a one-on-one interview the reason for that is is I'm, i'm interviewing two of the managing partners of an organization called terraform capital full disclosure as some of you guys may have seen, we put out a press release that I joined the organization for YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And I was looking for some really impressive people and impressive companies from a personal investing perspective. And I got a really good recommendation to talk to the guys at Terraform from another YPO member who I never met, but had some good conversations with and was a big fan. And after getting to know today's guests, Ryan Fabian and Mike Putrie, I was totally bought into their mission, incredible backgrounds, great stories. And um, they're both partners with each other. So it made sense to have them both on the podcast today. And we're going to talk about, like we usually do, with our great guests who have such great stories about where they're from, how their identities formed, how they got into finance, how they met each other. Some of what they're most known for, which I'm going to talk about, is they started an organization called The Crypto Company before anybody really knew what crypto was. So they were definitely pioneers. And we're talking about things that now seem a little bit mainstream, Mike, which we're going to touch upon, was for, I think, about a 15-minute period, was a, was a multi-billionaire, which I know we'll, t- we'll touch upon as well, because a, I'm, I'm interested to hear more about that story. Just quickly, before I bring them on, I want to give you a little bit of background. So the first partner that we're going to be talking to today, Ryan Fabian, 10-year Air Force intelligence veteran, full-stack development professional specializing, creating and expanding enterprise web data, fintech applications. He's got a ton of experience. In the world of blockchain, whether it be cryptocurrencies to blockchain development for use in finance, entertainment, and industrial sectors, Um, his preference is a more hands-on approach to development and management. To stay current and flexible in this industry, one needs to be in constant contact with code. He's a believer of. Um, His current focus at Terraform is blockchain development and the myriad use cases therein, as well as strategic crypto-related investments. He has a diverse background ranging from military leadership, which we're going to talk about, specialized cryptography training foreign language arts and Korean, and a master's of science in computer information systems. His partner, Mike, another great guy, 25 years in banking and corporate finance industry. Mike has successfully led companies as CEO and director, securing funding and executing IPOs on NASDAQ. Has created well over a billion dollars in shareholder equity through his efforts. He actually holds a BA from a, couple co- from a college I never heard of before, until I met Mike w- Whittier College, I believe it's called where he was a Whittier Scholar, and two-time recipient of the Richard Nixon Scholarship. He holds an MBA with an emphasis on international business or California Lutheran. And in 2017, he was accepted to Pepperdine University's PhD program in philosophy for global leadership. So that's their background. I'm going to bring them on finally for the start of our discussion, and we're going to get right into the meat of Everything. Ryan and Mike, welcome to the podcast. It's great to talk to you guys again.
1: <laughs> Alex, great to be here. Thank you very much. For great having to be here. on, Alex. Thanks
0: a lot. Awesome. Thanks for your time, guys. I know you're really busy. So quickly, because I want to make sure I get everything in in, in the 50 minutes that we have together, Ryan. I wanted to start with you. As I've mentioned, you and Mike have very interesting backgrounds. And to me, because I'm not a I don't have a finance mind. I, I'm always attracted. One of the reasons I, I interview on the podcast is I'm I'm attracted to people that do challenging things in their lives and really test themselves and do things that most people wouldn't even attempt to do. And finance people in that world interest me because I look at it like it's a whole different language. It's very complicated and very complex. So I'm interested specifically more than I have been in a while in both your and Mike's upbringings. And as I understand, you're a California native, you're born in Northridge, spent time in Camarillo. And also, as you told me before, you spent some time in Washington state. If you can, if you can just shine some light on your upbringing, your family dynamic, what your parents did for work, what you were into, kind of give us a little bit of story of what your life was like up until um, you graduated high school, I think that would be a good start.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and and all that I think will tie in uh, later on as well. But uh, thank you again for having us on. So yeah, I was born in Northridge uh, and spent most of my childhood in Camarillo, which is in Ventura County, Southern California. Family was a big part of who I am today, obviously, and I think that's true for many people. But my mother and father were—they um, both worked. My dad was a—he was an electronics engineer. So different from an electrical engineer, actually, because they do more stuff like semiconductors and computer chips. And he had a fascination with computers. And you're talking early 90s, you know, when it cost you $5,000 for a 100 megahertz, you know, computer at the computer show. And early on, I, I basically just latched onto that. Uh, I was p- very involved with pretty much everything he did. And he taught me a lot of what I know about hardware and software growing up. Um, we got to grow up essentially through that, right? Because the advent of the internet and a lot of the stuff that people were using on on their computers at that time were, was um, was new. Uh, so he was a huge piece of my initial attraction to computing, to programming, to technology in general, and the fascination that I still hold today. My mom actually was a, a hairstylist. And so she had the opportunity to to do a lot of her work out of her house because she set mm-hmm. up a little Shop in her garage, and so i had i had uh you know a, a good amount of time with my family and we grew up in in a little place called Santa Rosa Valley, which uh, you know we had an acre and a nice yard and it was fun just spent uh, a, an inordinate amount of time just working with computers and and uh spending time and and uh, the other basically the other half of my life was my passion for soccer, which is a sport I still actually play, and it was basically that it was school soccer and computers for. The majority of my life, we did have a period of time where as a family kind of made a decision. Uh, my dad was, we lived in Santa Rosa Valley in Camarillo, but he worked in LA. So it, it became pretty cumbersome for him as-
0: How far how far are the two areas from each other? Yeah. So
2: he was about two hours away from during rush hour. So every day, anytime to get into work took roughly two hours, anytime you're wow. going- 101 to 405 interchange, anybody that knows Southern California will know that that is the worst interchange in the world. Uh, and it just, it, there is no, yeah. there's no way around it. So, you know, after pr- roughly a decade of doing that, it just became a little too much. And we had an opportunity. It's a very interesting story. I'll try and make it brief, but we went on vacation to Washington state and stayed with some friends up in, in Linden, Washington. It's this is little town about three miles from the Canadian border, north of Bellingham. If you're familiar with Washington State, it's basically up to I-5, all the way right at the border. Yeah. It's a little Dutch town, probably 25,000 people total, and stayed with our friends up there. It was the dead of summer. It was mid-August. So gorgeous weather. Absolutely amazing. Green everywhere. The antithesis of California. And you know everybody really lived a relaxed life. We did that for two weeks, came back, and my father had an opportunity to essentially request to be transferred to the Seattle office for his business. He worked for National Semiconductor at the time. And they they had a need for his, his skill set up there. Um, he had transitioned from electronics engineering into actually sales. So he was doing sales of a lot of their chips. So there was an opportunity to move up there and work a majority of the time out of the house and really only leave when he needed to do travel like to Singapore and other places overseas. So we basically made the jump, took us about four days to sell our house in California.
0: About how old were you?
2: I was, uh, let's see, this was in 95. So I was 12. Oh, wow. Yep. See, I was born in 83. I'm at the bottom end of the millennial uh, spectrum. Yeah. Um, so yeah, moved up to Washington State. Immediately, the first thing we got there was something called a silver thaw. It is when it rains a torrential downpour uh, and then the, the uh, temperature drops well below zero and essentially flash freezes everything with maybe four or five inches of ice over everything, grass, trees, everything you could imagine is just covered in ice. Uh, and that wow. was our first first entrance into living in northern Washington. And it went on that way for you know, basically five years. And anybody that is familiar with the Northwest knows that it's it's pretty gloomy up there. There's a reason, I think, and this is more of an assumption, but there's a reason that Seattle is one of the suicide capitals of, of the United States, because it is... It can sometimes weigh on your psyche a bit when you just wake up every morning, it's raining and cloudy everywhere. And being from California, my whole family, it became a lot. So five years later, 2000, we made the uh, move back down to Southern California and uh, finished out high school uh, down in the same exact city that we left down in Camarillo.
0: And I'm going to bring Mike in in a second. I'm just curious because you mentioned that you moved at 12. I moved personally uh, at 14. Mm -hmm. I moved from New Jersey to South Florida to a North Miami beach suburb. And I remember that being really scary at the time, but looking back on it it was the best thing ever that happened to me. I wonder how that just quickly, how that transition from a new state, new city was like for you.
2: Oh, it was, I I actually loved it. And the reason growing up in Southern California, you, especially in Camarillo, which is pretty much a suburb, you get accustomed to a certain way of life. And that's that moving to Washington, we didn't just move into a suburb and kind of try and recreate our life from California. We flipped literally everything upside down. We, mo- we bought 20 acres of land. It had a farm. It had you know tractors. Uh, it had literally everything that we did not have in California. And our next door neighbor was a large dairy farmer. He had a thousand acres of land. Maybe I can't even estimate the number of cows he had, but it was a lot. And so as a 12-year-old boy, I was in heaven. I got to explore. I got to just ride my dirt bike all over the land. I got to drive tractors and fix stuff and and take care of cows and, you know, learn really as a child, I think it probably gave me a lot of, you know, the, the whole sink or swim mentality where you get a lot of responsibility and you either rise to the occasion or you don't. Uh, and for me at the time, I just, I wanted to rise. And so I was working with that dairy farmer across the street, waking up early, doing the milk the, uh, milking the cows, driving the tractor, spreading the manure all over the fields. Like that was me at a 12 year old. And I never would have had that opportunity had I not moved up there. So for me, it was an amazing experience. And I think, you know, it could have gone either way for, for any person, but I just took, took to it and latched onto it and loved the freedom.
0: That's great. That's a great story. Mike, a little bit different of a background was an East from what I understand, born in Dallas, right in the center of the country, six months, you live there as a baby. And then family moved to the other side, the other corner of the country, Northern Vermont, up near the Canadian border, as far as I understand. So you spent time in Vermont, the Northern part of the state and Montreal. Same kind of questions, Mike, what was life like as a kid for you? I'm interested to hear more about you and yeah, what what it was like growing up where you did up until about you know I would say right before you or right right when you were getting ready to graduate high school.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it it was interesting. My uh, both my both my parents were from northern Vermont, and they ended up in Dallas because they eloped uh, because their families hated each other. It's kind of the Hatfield Hatfield and the McCoys. So after I was uh, after they were married and I was born. Uh, they moved back up right after that, and it was uh, it was very interesting. It, 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 where I grew up was as rural as rural America gets. The, my first house that I can remember was five miles from a paved road, and it was it was all farming, all sustenance farming. But it was also one of the poorest areas in the country that you can be from. So I, I literally had friends that had uh, dirt floors. some had no phone. Um, it, <laughs> it was it was it uh, was pretty humble. Uh, but it was also a great place to be from, you know, especially when, uh, I guess when you were a spirited youth like I was just, you know, when you grow up in the country, there's only, there's only so much kind of trouble you can get yourself into, <laughs> you know, the kind of trouble that doesn't, that doesn't stay with you for a long time. But, uh, yeah, it was my, my parents were great. My father sold uh, life insurance for a living and my mother sold real estate. They were, were pretty much the only people in my, uh, uh, in my family that weren't farmers, but everybody else around us was farmers. So I grew up on farms the uh the stint that ryan had in washington those are my first memories (laughs) um you know growing up in from the time i was three years old herding cows around the yard and and handling stuff it was right on the border if you've ever seen the movie super troopers uh, where where those movies take place are is exactly where i'm from on the map Uh, as a matter of fact the area that i am from was supposed to be part of canada but the british surveyors who were uh, drawing the international border were (laughs) were drunk and they uh they drew a straight line across as opposed to uh walking it out so the uh but you can get around where I'm from uh, speaking French uh, the same way you can in Southern California speaking uh, Spanish. Uh, and uh, my, I grew up bilingual. My first language is French as well as English, which is, uh, was, was good and helped out a lot. So
0: That's really interesting. So I noticed, Mike, for you, because you, you grew up in Vermont area up until you graduated high school. Is that right? That is correct, yes. What urged you to go to college? On the complete other side of the country because you picked a Southern California liberal arts college i saw how did that even come up in conversation
1: it's a it's a very interesting question you know i have to take responsibility for it. i was old enough to know better at the time but where i was from people just didn't look at a lot of schools So i was fortunate enough to have the grades and the acumen as well as the uh, the drive i i could have gone to school anywhere but it never occurred to me to apply to the Ivy League schools. Yeah, not, I was not far sorry? from you in Vermont, those schools. they correct. Yeah. I mean, you had uh, Dartmouth, you know, it was two, an hour and a half from me. Uh, so it was, <laughs> I look back on that sometimes and I question that, but, you know, it's, you can't look back for the in life. You just have to take all the blessings they get along the way. So, um, sure. um, but I was referred to, uh, I was referred to Whittier College by a friend of my mother's who was an attorney who let me know that uh, uh, Richard Dixon had gone there. And I was oh, uh, okay. Cool. You know, I, I'm 50 years old. So when I was, you know, in in high school, of that age, you know, Family Ties is on, and I was watching um, uh, Michael J. Fox, the uh, Alex on Family Ties. Everybody, so you know, I'll all the i everybody going to be a little yuppie.
0: I got to jump in real quick. I, I, sorry to do this to you. My okay. name Alex. So m- I was named after that character. Um, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so so my my mother my mother loved Michael J. Fox on that show. Oh yeah. She wanted to name me Michael, but her brother's name is Michael, and in the Jewish religion, you don't name after people that are living. So she couldn't name me Michael, and that's where she got the idea for Alex because she loved that character. But sorry about that, but I, it's too too weird that you mentioned that.
1: Yeah, no, well, that's uh, that's the way it happened. So um, yeah, I was I was referred to it, and I I just I called Whittier, got an application, they accepted me. And I drove out three days before school started <laughs> so uh, that's how I found out about them and I just showed up and was like okay here's college and uh it turned out to be a wonderful experience um, you know I got a great education there I met some of my I have some my best friends and I'm still friends with today uh, I met uh, my my former wife and uh, mother of my children I uh, went there and so yeah it was it was a wonderful experience so I, I can't be grudged at all although um <laughs> If I had been more aware, I probably would have, uh, you know, at least gone, I don't know, maybe UCLA or USC or something like that. But um, again, Whittier was a wonderful experience, and I have no regrets on that.
0: I'm curious because you you did undergrad at a liberal arts school. And Ryan, I know it sounds, from what I understand about your timeline, after high school, you entered the Air Force. Is that right?
2: That is correct. Yeah.
0: You guys are, you know, to to people who see what you do now would be considered finance guys in the finance world. Although I want you to talk about this very different approaches and ideologies than traditional finance people, especially the people we come across here in New York, which is why I was so attracted to you guys. So Mike, for example, liberal arts education, you had a early career from what I know about your resume. You, you were the president of an organization called the blue and white fund. And I'm just curious, maybe from both your perspectives, it's not like you both graduated high school, traditional finance degrees and went to go work for went to go work for banks I'm curious to where the interest in the finance and the capital markets world, how did that, for each of you, how did that start to generate interest and motivation to follow that path?
1: Okay. I'll, I'll take the first uh, jab at that, then go over, over to Rye. But mine was really out of necessity. Again, I'm 50 now. So when I graduated undergrad, uh, it was 1993, and there was a recession going on at the time. So there were, there, there were no jobs. Here's my, I was out there with my shiny new degree, yeah, it was one of my first hard lessons in going to a small school versus going to a big school because here I was proud of my of my degree and I was a, a Whittier scholar, which is you know the school and you know what that is. Um, that was no easy task to, to to go down that route. People were like, "Is that a two years two year school or a four year school?" Nobody had even <laughs> heard of Whittier outside of the greater LA area, and even then, it's suspect. So I was you know, looking around for a job, and there were no jobs, but there were always jobs in sales and. My father convinced me to go to work for Prudential, whom he worked for, to sell insurance. And the last thing I wanted to do was go into the same line of work that my father was. You know, it's, I
0: just—that's tough. Yeah, that's t- that's ruling work.
1: It, it's tough. Well, it's—you it's, always want to be your own person, you know. And, and my dad had some some decent size shoes to fill, so yeah. But I got into it from necessity, and I just—I found out that I was good at sales. I'm outgoing, and uh, and it worked out well. But I really didn't like the insurance aspect of it. I was. Uh, I got really into the financial aspect of, you know, selling the Prudential mutual funds they had, but Prudential didn't pay at all. At least on that part, their, their, their focus at that time was very much squarely on insurance because insurance mm-hmm. is one of the most profitable products in the world. So anyways, I made my mind up that I wanted to be a stockbroker. And then it was from that point, it just be who I am. There was only two places for me that I could be that I wanted to be a stockbroker. It's either gonna be New York City or Beverly Hills. I figured anybody could go to Topeka, Kansas and be a stockbroker with, you know, all, all respect to people from Topeka. but you know, it's mm. the your your financial capital of the world is New York City, and beyond that is Beverly Hills. Uh, not for the world, but at least for the United States, everybody knows Beverly Hills, right? Sure. Uh, and in contemplating the two, uh, I, you know, having spent time out in California, and I recognize that you know, there's no forty below winters out here. There's no humidity. There's no mosquitoes. There's no black mm. flies. So it was a pretty easy decision for me to want to come out here. Um, but I wanted to come out. I wanted to go to the toughest place. I wanted to set up shop for myself and I wanted to win by myself. And you know, I was fortunate that I was, you know, I, I got in early at uh, some of the bank programs that had some some of the first brokerages and did very well there. Then I uh, got recruited by Smith Barney in Beverly Hills. I was fortunate to become you know, one of the top rookies and kind of took it off from there. And you mentioned that I ran the Blue and White Fund. That was after I had uh, I started at Smith Barney, went over to Payne Weber in Beverly Hills. And from there, I went over and started my own firm. I guess that's a little bit further down the road, but yeah, it's, that's how I got into his necessity. It's just I, I needed to work and there were no jobs except for sales. And so I just got in and started grinding and found out I had an act for it and it was just learning ever since.
0: Cool. Thanks for that. And Ryan, how about you? Air Force guy. Yeah. You were a linguistics specialist. Your background from what I know, you were a tech guy before you got to the crypto company, which I want to talk about with Mike again, because. It seems like from what I know about you guys, that was the first venture together. Where did the mind for finance come into play for you?
2: Oh, that was very, very late. I'll, I'll say that I have no interest and no inkling uh, in getting into finance until <laughs> way down the road. Uh, I, I actually went into the Air Force, not even for intelligence. I went in to be a combat controller, which is one of the Air Force's special forces duties, just because at the time I was an athlete and I thought I you know, wanted to be an operator and just be this badass and do everything and you know, jump out of planes and shoot bad guys and things like that. I I was 19 when I went to the Air Force. So I trained hard, did all the tests that were necessary, got into basic training. I was basically a shoe-in for the, the CCT program, the combat controller program. And uh, during the flight physical, I found out that I was color deficient in my eyes, which actually the majority, a, a very, very large percentage of males are color deficient in some way, shape or form. If you've ever done those dot tests for your eyes uh, that have like colorful dots and like circular, like a circle of dots, and you're supposed to see the number inside of it. I was going through that for the flight physical, turning pages, reading all the numbers, got to like the last two pages and I, they were completely invisible to me. Like I said, there's no, there's no number in this one and there's no number in that one. And that's when I kind of understood that there was a problem. So I had an opportunity while I was there, I was actually at training, finding this out. Hey, you can't be a combat controller because you are color deficient. But what you can do is you can go in some other job if you qualify. Later on down the road, the military has this cool thing where you can basically cross-train once in your career. So you do your career for like four or six years, whatever your contract is. And then you say, hey, I want to do something completely different that has nothing to do with this at all. And they have to let you do it. Um, There's very, very small percentages of times where that is not the case. But 99.9% of the time, everybody gets an opportunity to cross-train. So that's what my plan was. I don't want to take too much of the time on this, but it's, uh, it, it's definitely what kind of brought me here today. But uh, I, I decided to go into their cryptographic linguist program. Mm. And I said, hey, look, I'm, I'm only going to do this. If I can do this, uh, then I'll, I'll stay. If not, then I'm just going to get out of the military and go to college. So they, they put me in a room. They basically had you take, you take this test called the Defense Language Aptitude Battery. And what it is essentially is that they make up a language on the spot. They tell you the rules of the language, grammar, syntax, etc., and then they talk in that language that they just made up, and you have to do your best to translate it in whatever fashion you can. And understanding how you know words end and and sentences end and things like that. And I didn't had no idea what I was doing. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I, I literally you could say I was guessing on every question. I ended up scoring like two points off maximum for that aptitude, which is you know was very good. So I thought, great! I'm gonna I'm gonna kill this. I'm gonna go do. I want to be an Italian liaison. Go to Italy. You know, have this cush military life. Go to the the uh, the embassy there. And the problem was is that the higher you score, the more difficult languages that you must comply by. So you have to essentially take their category five languages, which there were two of. One of them was Korean. One of them was Arabic. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna do anything, I'm gonna go to Asia. I'm not gonna go to the sandbox. So took Korean and. That, uh, that led me down the intelligence path. I went through that schooling in Defense Language Institute in Monterey Bay for two years, learning Korean every single day. It's immersion training. Uh, that, that's literally your job in the military. It's just to learn the language. And you have two years to become fully fluent, reading, writing, speaking, everything. It's actually a little shorter than two years, but it, mine, mine didn't start right away. So I was there for about two years. Then I spent uh, another about eight months in Texas for their uh, Air Force's cryptographic training which is a whole, you know, (laughs) that's a deep underground type of uh, uh, opportunity to learn some cool stuff that they do. Then I spent, uh, you know, went to Korea. And I did everything in Korea. I did translation. I did interpretation. I did mission leadership. I did interrogation. I did pretty much everything that I could there. I just volunteered for. I tried to go as high as I could, ended up uh, in the latter period of my career, coming back to Fort Meade, Maryland, which is where one of our three letter agencies resides, and mm-hmm. spent yeah. uh, some time there. Um, and uh, that, was, that was really for me the, the period of time where I got most involved with any, any form of finance. Because underneath all of the operations that exist there, they have many different types of people. They have civilians, they have military, but they also have a lot of regular guys that are just complete and utter savants in programming. Mathematics, everything you could think of. And they kind of do whatever they want. They don't have, I mean, they're part of a mission. They're part of an office usually, but they have, you know, they do what they want and they always output something that's fantastic. So I got to interface with a lot of those people. And it was my first time really getting in the weeds with cryptocurrencies and blockchain and understanding that.
0: This was around, Ryan, what year?
2: This was 2010. So right after, literally right after the Bitcoin white paper had been released. Agency is, you know, has people doing things. And, you know, I have to sanitize a lot of what I talk about with pretty much everybody I speak to because everything I did there is classified. But, you know, I can still kind of give you the origin story of what got me interested and how I really latched onto that. Again, just growing up, technology, programming, hardware, things like that. Working with those guys there, it, it opened my eyes to new ways of thinking, understanding what blockchain was then. And granted, blockchain as a technology has been around for decades. There's an aside there that I think Mike will get into later when we start talking about the fund a little bit, but but understanding that it could also be used for currency and this whole aspect of decentralization. And now we're talking about finance with a very, very large underpinning of technology. And that's what got me interested the most.
0: Got it. So I want to get into the fund because I want you guys to explain all about the fund because you know, I personally think it's exciting. The one question I, one thing I want to get to quickly though is, and I don't know which one of you would like to take this. Take this. How did you guys meet,
2: Mike? You want to take that? Right.
1: You go
2: for it. <laughs> it's actually a funny story. I had exited the military in 2014 at my 10-year mark, and the the reasons for that I won't get too deep into. But I had some ethical differences in the way that they did business uh, at the place I was working. So left the military, came back to California to uh, Equinox to kind of work out and keep my fitness up. I, I noticed this other guy in there that's, you know, biggest beast that I've ever seen. He's doing handstand pushups on <laughs> a set of rings, mind you, not even on the ground, on rings, like suspended in the air doing handstand pushups. And I thought that guy is strong. And so immediately just walked over, started talking to him a little bit. Then the next week after that, we were both doing handstand pushups at the gym. Uh, and that kind of started our friendship uh before we ever started doing business together at all we had uh, obviously a a a knack for uh exercise and fitness and working out and being strong and we found out as we started to continue to talk that we both like racing mike's an avid open wheel race car driver um and there's tons of stories there i race motorcycles some of it was in korea actually being able to race for a team over there so and we're both avid formula 1 fans so it was an nice. easy friendship from the start. And uh, the business really didn't come into play until, you know, until there was an opportunity for it uh, at the crypto company. But yeah, it started out as a very, very good friendship. And we knew that uh, we, we both liked each other's just overall style and our philosophies on life. And, and uh, as we got to see each other a little bit on, on business uh, items, when we'd speak, we could both see that there was going to be something happening in the future. We just didn't know what it was.
0: Cool, it's a great story. It's a good fun fact about Mike too. Yeah, 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 that he was able to to do that at any part of his life is impressive. <laughs> so, Mike, I, I know a big part of your life is you, you were sick for about a year. If you wouldn't mind, what what was that year like for you? Because you had accomplished so much up into around that time period. What your thoughts were when you were sick about what your life was going to be like coming out of it, and wh- around what year was that? And where what phase were you at in your life when all that happened?
1: <laughs> it was uh it was recently, it was 2019. So I, we'd started the crypto company in the beginning of uh, 2017, took it public in June, um, and then my December of that year, is when all the fanfare came out, and some of the stuff that uh, you mentioned in the pre-interview, where yeah, you know, where I was a, a billionaire, you know, one of the one of the, the Wall Street Journal had me on the cover twice in a month in December of 2017, and uh, they had listed me because we had taken the crypto company public to demonstrate that you could be in the crypto space and be a good corporate citizen, and we also wanted to espouse and help. Uh, espouse and evangelize the cryptocurrency world and the the burgeoning world of blockchain by taking this company public, and giving the SEC the opportunity to review documents, financials, in the manner and structure which they're accustomed to reviewing things, in the form of 10Ks, 8Ks, Qs, whatnot. But as such, when that frenzy was going on during 2017, when they were, you know, when the world really first got hungry for Bitcoin on a very large scale, we took the company public at a 30 million dollar valuation and. Within four months, the, the stock went from three to six hundred. It was wow. it was insane. But in and again, I'm a, as you mentioned before, I'm more of a corporate finance uh, and and investment banking person, and I'm running a publicly traded technology company. But kind of taking a, the long way around to answer your question, but it, I think it uh, it's pertinent. So when I we got to come into a certain level, it was always forecasted that I was going to step down as CEO because we we're going to bring in uh, you know an executive that was more suited towards uh, running a technology company. I just had experience because I'd run two other prior publicly traded companies. So I'd had ex- a lot of experience in the space, was able to guide the company through their initial throes as a public company. And then in the middle of 2018, in May of 2018, I had stepped out and it honestly, effectively retired. It, uh, I was still close to being a billionaire at the time of where the stock was. And that fall, and Ryan had, was working uh, with the crypto company at that time. And that fall, he and I had spoken, I had talked to him about starting Terraform. And we were set to, we were going to be launching Terraform on January of 2019. And January 9th of 2019, I, I dropped. Uh, it was a young person to get a very bad case of diverticulitis, which is an erosion of the lining in your large intestine. Mm. And so my large intestine literally fell apart uh, inside me. And the pain was excruciating. <laughs> it was.
0: There were no signs of this before this, this incident? Not
1: at all. Not at all. Uh, it was just, it just came on and all of a sudden I was, rolling on the floor screaming. My girlfriend at the time called 911 uh, and uh, there I was in the hospital and I was literally for a year unconscious or sedated. I had five surgeries, uh, oh slipped stem to five times on uh, my second surgery. I actually coded and died. I had the, the full round trip experience. So I went to the other side was given actually the opportunity to stay or come back. And, uh, you know, I have children, so I chose to uh, come back and I'm very glad that I did, but it was, uh, it was a brutal year. I mean, just imagine disappearing for a year. You know, just boop, blip, gone.
0: How how rare in, is this in terms of percentages?
1: I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's it's been explained to me that diverticulitis is not uncommon, but it is uncommon for somebody as young as me, even though I was forty eight at the time. And it, it was an interesting coincidence because my father passed away at forty eight also. So, uh, but it was yeah, it was a brutal brutal year. I, I was a shell of a human being when I was in the hospital. I uh, I looked like a skeleton and it was a long rehab. And even after I got out of the hospital, it was, well, it took us, you know, I got out of the hospital and I finished everything really at the end of 2018, but i the sorry, you know, 2019, but we didn't launch the fund until Q3 of 2020. So that it really took me a long time just to get my focus and my head back. And it was the toughest thing I've ever had to go through.
0: Wow. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know the detail that I I knew that you were sick. But I I didn't know to the to the extent of what, and I didn't realize that Terraform the idea for it was before you actually got sick. So mm-hmm. you coming out of that was fulfilling the idea and the plan that you had put together with Ryan previously.
1: Yeah, and to his credit, Ryan actually waited for me. It was um, I'll always be grateful for that because Ryan, as you can tell, he's an extremely talented individual, yeah. and he had uh, I think quite a bit of opportunity in front of him. We had a deal and an agreement, and he held his end. So it was. It was worth fighting for. And it's 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 been a great fight. I mean, but we've built something that we're very, very proud of.
0: Well, it's part of what drew me to you guys. And so let's talk Terraform. Mm-hmm. We got about 14 minutes left. I want our listeners to get an idea of, in layman's terms, what Terraform is, what the mission is, where the fund is now, where you're going. I know because I've gotten the emails about other funds that have come out. You have the crypto fund um, now that's come out. So if one of you would like to give just like a quick elevator version, I don't want to say pitch, but an elevator story of what it is, where it's going, and why you're excited about the future of blockchain, um, I think that would be good.
1: Sure. Well, I'll handle the the business end of it. I'll let Ryan uh, handle the technology aspect of it, which is uh, really how we do things. But The nature of Terraform Fund and, and how we invest in, in what we do was really born out of uh, my MBA you had mentioned the Blue and White Fund. The Blue and White Fund, when I ran that, was a it was a 40-act fund. It was a publicly traded mutual fund and an international fund. And the name Blue and White is Kolaban, which is Blue and White in Hebrew. And it was the first actively managed mutual fund that invested exclusively in Israeli-based companies, both here and in Tel Aviv. And so I was going back and forth to uh, Tel Aviv quite a bit, which is one of the reasons I speak Hebrew. And, nice. and I, it was my first fund that I'd managed. But while I... And then from being in corporate finance and having run some publicly traded companies, I had recognized that there was a problem in my estimation in terms of the I thought the, the venture capital model for investing was really broken in that you know the VC model or the PE fund model for investing is lock people up for five to eight years and you you know they have a portfolio of 20, 30 companies that help they get a few unicorns and not everything crushes. And but they also go down to the and they make investments that sometimes work against the portfolio companies. Like, you know, they really cram down their cap tables so they can get as much as they can. And it was just a really eye-opening experience to observe all that. And so I thought there has to be a better way. Um, you know, Moral hazard and unintended consequences are two things that I spent a lot of time focusing on. So I developed a new method and model for investing, uh, strategy for investing, into the VC markets. And I started my second fund was from my first hedge fund uh, right after I got out of business school, and that fund did extremely well. It did extremely well. Um, the, uh, I, you know the returns were so high, they're almost absurd to uh, to repeat, but the uh, the audited returns were extremely high, and it showed that the, the method worked. And you know we took a a healthy debt mentality, a non-convertible debt mentality, uh, which you know can really again, done properly, it really helps companies, and we would take equity and uh, in the form of warrants or options on the side. Which means that we didn't have to wait for a particular liquidity event to get uh, for a company to to pay our money back. Um, it also enhanced the internal rate of return of the fund. So the strategy and the structure uh, came from my experience in business school, and then we wanted to apply that to what we saw, you know, in in speaking with Ryan and learning. A lot of my, block of my blockchain experience and, and acumen comes from our conversations because he's such a wealth of information. Uh, but seeing how blockchain was at the time and is transforming this world and understanding that tidal wave that's coming for really how this is going to change business more so than I think Internet 1.0, it just seemed a natural fit to be able to take this, you know, look at this field and then apply our, you know, our proven concepts of management style to this and, and have fun. And that's really where Terraform was born.
0: Ryan, did you wanna it was a very good overview, but I don't know if there was any color you wanted to add to that.
2: No, I I think not not too much. Just, you know, the the us working together at the crypto company really saw us in the multitude of ways that we had interaction. He is CEO and I was directing technology there. We we both knew that we we understood that there was way more to scenarios in the future that would utilize blockchain technology in some way, shape or form, that it would be silly not to to focus on that as as a technology. And and as we started to write our initial thesis and and how we were going to go about doing this and why, one thing that stood out to both of us that was happening at the same time, if you're familiar with the company Maersk, one of the largest shipping companies in the world, they were partnering with IBM blockchain and they were building then, and I believe it's still called the same thing, but it's called TradeLens. And they have a wonderful case study on it about the fact that they have a very antiquated system of tracking shipments, right? Manifests, everything's paper, everything has to be seen by a human, and everything has to be signed hand signature. You know, one of their examples they give in the case study is that uh, one, one single, you know, box, one of their freight boxes that heads on a ship, let's say from, from South Africa to the Mediterranean, just that, just that journey alone generates 200 signed has to be seen by a, a human being, pieces of paper that they have to store and track and, and manage one, one of them. And you've seen those ships. They carry thousands of, of shipping containers. So imagine taking that antiquated system, working with IBM, spending a, a good amount of money on investing into a new system called TradeLens that essentially manages the system for them via a private permission to blockchain that they're able to essentially allow Ports of entry to have access to for nodes to be able to scan things on on an automated basis, and you know you're talking about a, a billion dollars of savings in the first year that this was this was uh, introduced for Maersk just wow. in overhead cost savings, just getting this. And that that case study really yeah. spoke to both of us. Were you going to say something Mike?
1: yeah, not to mention the time saved?
2: Oh yeah, you know that was happening uh, as we were really refining our thesis for the fund. And it, and it was just kind of the final nail in the coffin that this is, uh, I guess it's probably not a good analogy to use, right? Because uh, it was really the birth, the birth of something that was, uh, that was being validated by this extremely large company that recognized, as we did, the multitude of use cases for blockchain. Most people think blockchain is cryptocurrency. In fact, the majority of people I talk to yes. think they're the same exact thing. And, yes. and I would argue that As fund managers um, and and being in this space and talking to people about this, we are as much fund managers as we are technology educators, because we are consistently having conversations with people to help educate in ways that they don't have an opportunity to. And there's, granted, there are thousands of of opportunities now on YouTube and other areas where you can just go on and and search and you're going to see all kinds of explanations as to What's what? What are NFTs? What is blockchain? Mm-hmm. What is this type of blockchain? But at the time, you know, 2017, when we started this, it was uh, it was mainstream in the sense that it got to you know Bitcoin hit twenty thousand yeah. dollars and then you know crashed down to like forty five hundred. But but that's not really mainstream. I mean, that was just some people that were that were pushing that market up. But the majority of people still did not know. And I think to this day, the majority of people still do not know really the differences and and how this is going to be so pivotal. And and we can get into this a, a little bit more in, in another segment if you want to, but the pivotal change from what we see as Web 2 and the Web 2 2.0 movement from the initial advent of the internet into what we see today, which is Web 2 and that everything that you do is centralized by some type of company and essentially owning the majority of your data to Web 3, which is really taking that back. It's the revolution that will Allow people to take back their identity in in any manner, and it's not going to happen overnight for sure. That is without a doubt. But I'm sure that with the the level of interest that we see in blockchain tech just within companies um, for additional revenue or refinement of their own business model, all the way to cryptocurrencies and and getting into really this asset class as an investment, you know over the next decade or so we're really going to see this web three movement pushing hard, and people that don't really understand it are going to see why it's so pivotal. They're going to look back to 2020, 2021, even before then, and really congratulate the people that saw that and 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 say, hey guys, you really saved us there because this was, this was getting out of hand with the way things are going.
0: You guys probably have no short of people wanting to pitch you on investing with them or talking to them or giving them advice. When you make a decision to allocate money or invest in a company that will come into the fund, is there a particular type of philosophy or similar components that you guys are looking for? What, 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 when you're looking to wrap your arms around a particular company, whether it's to do a direct investment, offer investment up to people in the fund, what boxes are you trying to tick?
1: Well, first of all, we have to understand and appreciate and agree with the business plan of the company. That's usually the starter because your first introduction to any company is usually some form of a deck. So we have to look at it and see if we can understand their vision, if we can see where they want to go with it. And then you have to take a look into the company. And if you agree with your business plan, then you go and you look at the people, you know, your human risk, your human capital is, is, as, is as important as anything. You can have the best idea in the world, but if you have the wrong people running the company, yeah. what I mean by that is sometimes a good carpenter doesn't make a good contractor. You may be able to build a house, but can you build a thousand houses, right? Can you scale it? Do you, have, do, you, do you have the human capital that you need to do it? And then if you have a good business plan and you have the right people, do they have the right resources? You know, we, we like to be strategic investors and bring smart money to the table. But one of our tenants of investing is we never have the most to lose. We're never going to be the one stuck holding the bag. So we're going to participate and we're going to bring other smart capital. We're going to do it, but we're going to make sure that we we have to get sucked into something. Right. Um, you know, we, we don't want to have to save something if it's not savable, if it's not meant to live. Those are some initial things we look at. We have to agree with the business plan. We have to really look at the executive team of the company to make sure they have the human people. And then do they have the resources and the other contacts to be able to do it? And if A, then B, then C, then then we can probably move forward with them.
2: Yeah, just to follow up on that, I think it, it should be mentioned that our stated focus in our PPM and for the fund is... Really going after blockchain infrastructure companies those those companies the tip, tip of the spear technology that's additive in nature that uh, these companies are really building things that that don't exist yet or that they exist in some other antiquated form like we were speaking about earlier, so that's a huge focus, but we also have flexibility to invest in companies that we see extreme value in that is you know any rational person would see that and say, okay, maybe that's not blockchain, but certainly any private company or fund or person would want to be invested in that because they see where it's going. One of those you know one of one of those examples in our fund now that's not blockchain focused is SpaceX. We yeah. are on SpaceX cap table because we had an opportunity. We had relationships uh, that allowed us to take part in a private round that they were doing, and we saw the alpha for our investors in that in that range. So just wanted to add that in because we are, as we said, blockchain focused. And Mike hit a really good note on the management style and the business model and the financials, and that kind of leads into the, a, a good point about what I like to talk about when we talk about our management style of the fund. Him being finance background, my, me being tech, is because when you are when you're looking at a tech company to invest in, you need to understand the technology, right? That's should be number one. If you if you're getting pitched with a deck and looking at some numbers about some performas, but you're not able to get hands-on with their code or with their architecture or talk to their CTO in a meaningful way that has, that has any value to the future of your investment, then you're kind of going in blind. And that's what we have seen so many times with these types of funds that are technology focused. Technology is one thing, right? When you're talking about a tech investment, okay, we have a certain level of expertise that's necessary. But then you add on a layer of having any integration with blockchain, and then it just becomes who who even knows about this? Who can sit down and look at this and say, "Yep, that's good," and that's what I do. That's really what I bring to this, this equation that I think is the yin to Mike's yang in managing this fund. I sit down. I've built multiple blockchain applications, built DApps. I built my own blockchain I've just to just to do things and really have a hands-on. So that when we do talk to these guys. I can ask the questions that are actually meaningful for us and for our investors. Uh, And that has really, I think, been the key to our success so far, is that we're able to touch on all the points that are necessary to make an an accurate and valuable decision for our investors.
0: Touching upon kind of the plan for Terraform coming into 2022, you guys have launched the Europa Digital Asset Fund, which is a separate fund as far as obviously I understand from mm-hmm. the initial fund that was launched when you started the company and when the company got off the ground. Can you guys talk about that fund, what it is, and why you guys are excited by it?
1: Sure. Well, Europa is, like you said, it's our digital assets fund. Terraform does not have any digital asset uh, holdings at all. Uh, it doesn't accept digital currencies uh, for investment. And a lot of this has to do with you know the current status of how crypto is viewed by Regulators and by banks and the you know the historic financial world by with which we have to, as a fund we have to operate you know we have to have bank accounts we have to have we have to do things that are not seen as threatening to a particular regulator or to the to a banking community right so Terraform invests only in as it, in, in regular companies as brick and mortar companies yes it pursues blockchain infrastructure it's a technology a cutting edge technology fund. But it, it invests in brick-and-mortar companies that that do business in whatever local fiat currency they're doing business in. And you know we're able to track their financials and, and do things according to a the traditional banking mentality, right? But being where we are in the world and given our acumen and the fact that the crypto company, we started one of the first proprietary trading desks for crypto in the country. We were going around the world speaking. And it was over at the milking conferences in Abu Dhabi. have... I mean, Sat next to and on panels with Mike Novogratz, the Winkleboss twins. I mean, everybody that you know in, in the, the infancy of what crypto is, these are all people that we're in communication with. The gentleman who's credited with creating blockchain is one of our advisors, one of our good wow. friends. Yeah, and if you yeah, we have a real deep bench in that regard and just it made sense for us. We've always wanted to have a digital asset fund. We've wanted to We wanted to be able to accept this, but it had to be in the form of a a new fund that was purely, uh, purely dedicated to digital assets. And we're able to launch that uh, this uh, this month, actually. So Europa is governed by uh, some in-house proprietary indexes that Ryan and I built Well, I, I philosophized on and he made them real. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and we made them even even better than what I had thought about, which was fantastic. We have proprietary in-house algorithms that govern part of the fund, and we have an investment committee that does a bit of manual curation and manual selection. So we have a very intelligent design for the fund, and it's you know, while crypto's off to a rough start for the year, it's off to a much better start than the broader broader market start. So
0: the more I I try to become or invest in certain things, I pay attention to the lingo that people are talking. Fed and interest rates i don't know how it's all connected but i guess if you're investing in crypto and you have exposure in the traditional market you know i guess you have to pay attention to some of it you guys obviously are very ambitious been successful there's obviously a huge motivation regardless of both of your successes to to really take this and and to really make it something special i'm curious if what your expectation and what your plan or you know in some sense what your goal is for Terraform as a company, what you hope it looks like in three years, and you know what what the goals are in the next five to six years. What what success would look like for you guys for the for for the company?
1: We 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 enjoy success r- really every day. I mean, it's Ryan and I do this because we choose to do it. We want to do this, and, and you're right, we are driven. But this is passion. We're not working for lunch money. We're, well, both Ryan and I have done for Brian, and I've done pretty pretty well for ourselves. Even even though I'm not in the top, top of the one percent anymore. Um, you know, it's, we, we both have done well in our careers. And this is passion. This is us wanting to do something that matters, that leaves a mark. Uh, and we're able to help a community really develop. And, and looking at it, you know, from my standpoint, I, again, I'm a little bit older than, than Ryan, I'm 50. Nobody knew when the Internet 1.0 came out, nobody knew how much the internet was going to change the world. It took everybody by surprise. Nobody could understand this stuff. Yeah, You know, and I mean, you know, I remember when Morgan Stanley gave GeoCities $30 million. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and you know, the first generation of stuff. But now I consider myself very privileged to be at a point where I've been around long enough. You get a second, second time at bat for a, just a, a, a game-changing manner of how we do business. Blockchain will change the way this world operates. We can see it. We, we, and we see it with a thousand-yard stare. I mean, it's, it's obvious to us where it's not obvious to others. And so if for us, it is a privilege and I guess sometimes even almost a duty, but it's like, we, we can see this and we're, I mean, it's, you know, it's not hard to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, it's, you know, we, it's, you know, I sleep maybe four or five hours a night anyways. I've never needed a day to sleep. Uh, but you know, this stuff is just, it's fascinating and it's fun and it drives us, you know, it drives, just drives us, Ryan.
2: Yeah, that's, that. Uh, you said it very well, I think. Going back to what something I was mentioning earlier is that I I I do think that Terraform will will play a continued part in in becoming a, an educator just as much as it is an investor. Um, I, I really do think that there's a lot here that uh, that we can teach people not just about the markets, right? The markets are one thing, but about the technology and about the philosophy and the changes to things outside of just monetary gain that we have to look forward to. And and like you were saying earlier, Alex, that you you know, you've been taking a little bit more notice to some of the terminology and some of the markets and some of the technology in general, but the, the amount of people that are involved with the development of this industry with blockchain and cryptocurrency in general is, is pretty awesome to see. So much so that as, as part of my job doing what I do, I have to spend in an hour, sometimes two hours a day per day reading about the new things that have been launched in that 24-hour period of time, the new white papers that are coming out, the new opportunities that exist with companies utilizing some form of blockchain with their business model. There's just a a slew of this change moving forward in the future. And and we didn't really get even into NFTs at all because NFTs have a whole separate, I think, trajectory, separate but equal, I think, in that they have use cases that are way more near and dear to people that would never even look twice at crypto or blockchain in general, right? You're talking about creatives, artists. Um, and and there's a huge debate to be had there. And I have it with pretty much everyone that I know and my <laughs> friends and family and people that that talk about this as to the efficacy of NFTs in general. And I think that without being too long on that right now is an interesting time. I would call it almost a weird time in that they're being used for for things that, you know, maybe aren't what they should be used for, yeah. but the but the future use case scenario for NFTs and the future integration with blockchain and really the mass adoption goes straight into the web three point that I was making earlier. And I think it's it's really just a huge web. We're just trying to get in it as early as possible, educate as much as we can and bring all of our our friends, families and investors along for the ride with us.
0: Awesome. Well, guys, I know you've given me an extra uh, extra 10 to 15 minutes. I know you're rushing also to uh, what I would assume is another discussion. So I want to give you a little bit of a breather. Again, for everyone listening, I, I hope you all enjoyed it. I did. Um, every time I talk to these guys, I learn not just one thing, but so many so many new things. To reconfirm, uh, the company that they run is called Terraform Capital. We spoke today with both managing partners, Ryan Fabian and Mike Putri, two awesome guys on the cutting edge of a, uh, I don't know, a sector or revolutionary change that I feel like and one of the reasons I was I was drawn to the to working with you was because I meet so many people that kick themselves about missing out on the evolution of the internet. And aside from you guys being great guys, being very knowledgeable about the space, you want to be with people that you know have been there early and see it, like you said, Mike, a thousand yards out. And if anybody has any interest to further the conversation with Terraform, by all means, they're not hard to find. And yeah, I'm excited. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to, um, to have gotten on, I guess, in the early stages with you guys. So with that, I really appreciate you guys uh, spending the time with the Millennium listeners today. And um, hopefully either at some point this year or maybe a year from now, we'll do a part two to this and we'll see how see how everything is going.
1: That'd be fantastic. That'd be wonderful. It was a privilege. Really, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, both speak more and to address your audience. So thank you very much.
0: You got it, guys.
2: Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the
0: meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.